0: Detoxification is often the first step in treating alcoholism. Depending on the patient's drinking history, different protocols may be used. How do you best detox patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Abin Singla, addiction medicine expert from Joliet, Illinois. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here today.
0: So how do you know when detox is necessary? For an alcohol patient?
1: Detox is necessary for an alcohol patient generally in many, many cases. And part of the factors that you look into is how long someone has been drinking, uh, how much they've been drinking, and what their medical comorbidities are, and whether they've ever had problems detoxing in, in the past. And so it's kind of done on a case-by-case basis.
0: Obviously, the longer the drinking career, the more likelihood that you need to go into a medical detox?
1: Correct. The longer the drinking, the quantity of alcohol that's being drunk or consumed, the higher the blood alcohol level. These are all factors that are taken into account on whether someone needs to be detoxed. There's a lot of patients that I'll see that, you know, they'll say, you know, I'll try and do it at home on my own. And, you know, what, what I've experienced is it's, really hard for patients to do that. I mean, they've, in their mind, made a decision that I am going to uh, stop drinking. And what I really think of it is is if you look at the spectrum of people that are willing to make change in their life, it's what we call the pre-contemplative phase. And so when you have someone at home that's trying to detox or wean themselves down at home, it's really hard when they're feeling miserable, they're, they're anxious, they're shaking, they're sweating, when they know that the little bottle that they have on the shelf or the that they have in the fridge will make them feel a lot better. It takes a tremendous amount of willpower for someone to be able to do that on their own. I just find it very difficult for patients to do that that way.
0: Well, and two, that, uh, you know, having them drink maybe a 12-pack today and 11 beers tomorrow and 10 the next day obviously isn't going to work.
1: Yeah, I mean, alcoholism is defined as the inability to control your drinking. So, you know, it's very hard to tell someone, you know, drink 12 today and 10 tomorrow and 8 the day after because by definition it's a, it's a disease of compulsion. You know, if you start with one, you just can't stop until you're done. And so it's very hard to do it that way. You know, a lot of times if you have family members that are very involved and can control someone, those are the only cases where I've seen success. But generally, as a physician, I would not recommend trying to do that because if there is any complications involved, then, you know, the physician would be some degree responsible for them. Mm-hmm.
0: So what complications are possible?
1: There's a big spectrum. Alcoholism is one of those diseases. And I remember when I was was training initially, they said that if you understand alcoholism, then you understand pretty much every disease in the human body because there's not a system that it doesn't involve. But in in general, when you're detoxing, your biggest risks are, you know, development of seizures, which can occur very quickly, you know, as quickly as one to two days after you actually discontinue drinking can have alcohol hallucinosis uh, where you actually start to uh, hallucinate typically with tactile hallucinations you you feel things crawling on you and obviously the dreaded complication is uh, delirium tremens but even in minor alcohol withdrawal syndrome you have various issues where you know you're an autonomic overload so your blood pressure it can be extremely high you can become tachycardic you know issues like that that can come up i mean we've actually had patients that have had small strokes during the alcohol withdrawal phase where they've tried to do it on their own and their blood pressure was so high that they actually had some neurological damage from that.
0: Now, in med school, we were taught that DTs or delirium tremens happens. You know, I think the statistic back then was 15% of the time. And, and I can't say actually that I've ever seen it ever. So how common is it really?
1: The studies it range anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of the time. The real scary thing about that is that even in a hospital, mortality rate is as high as twenty to twenty five percent and if it's not in a hospital it's as high as thirty five percent. So it's a complication that you don't want to see. So, you know, the key is is when you're doing detox you're very aggressive up front to try and prevent that. So it does happen more often than you think and obviously in my practice I'm a, a primary care physician plus I specialize in addictions. We tend to see a lot more, but I can tell you anecdotally from my own experience that 10 to 15% number is probably, in my practice, on the lower end. And a lot of that has to do is when you're getting patients in the detox cycle. You know, if you have someone that you're admitting who is intoxicated and starting him on detoxification. it's a lot different than someone who comes in off the street that's been trying to do it on their own for two days already and is already in withdrawal and you're trying to catch up.
0: Now, detox strategies have changed quite a bit since the old days. Isn't that true? Yep.
1: They absolutely have. Detox strategies have changed a lot since the olden days. Originally, a lot of this was done outpatient. And there's a, a trend to, to try and move back from that from some of the insurance companies. But you know, the issue is is that, you know, just how medically stable, and, and I quite frankly probably have a bias because I am an internist as well, and so in, in addition to detoxing, I'm also managing a lot of medical comorbidities, but the typical detox pattern in the past used to be a fixed dosing schedule, and generally we use, you know, benzodiazepines, you know, Librium or, or Ativan or Valium, and it was on a fixed dosing schedule. Whether someone wanted it or not, they got it every four hours and a couple of days or a day, and then every six, and then every eight, and every 12, and kind of worked its way down. And the newer uh, detox protocols are usually based on uh, CIWA, which is a clinical institute withdrawal assessment. And so it's basically a score sheet that has criteria that the nurses check off. You know, blood pressure, uh, elevation gives you a certain number of points, heart rate elevations give you a certain number of points, hallucinations give you a certain number of points. And based on that, you're giving medications based on symptoms, And so the studies that compared fixed dose versus symptom-based show that symptom-based patient satisfaction is much higher, and the length of stays are much, much lower, and there's less complications associated with that.
0: So what medicines do you use these days?
1: Typically, I have a preference to using Ativan. You know, in the olden days, we used to use Librium, which I really like as well problem is, for for some reason, Librium IV or Librium IM is not available as readily as Ativan. And so we use a lot more of lorazepam to detox. And in some cases, our our protocol would actually be to use lorazepam based on the CWIS scores, the clinical institutes of withdrawal assessments for the symptom-based. But if we have someone that's really withdrawing severely and the CWIS scores aren't holding him, at that point, we have two options. And one option is to put him on a a drip of of Ativan or Versad, something short-acting, that we can monitor them in an intensive care unit. Or the other option, which is a preferred option, is you add an oral librium as kind of a give. So to give you an example, you might be giving oral librium like 10 milligrams every four hours as a give, holding it if the patient becomes overly sedated, and on top of that, applying your symptom-based
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host. And with me today is Dr. Abin Singla. So the strategy's really changed. You know, back in the dark ages when I trained, the strategy was to give the long-acting meds. In my day, it was Valium, uh, maybe Librium, and just try to cover them with the long-acting agent. So instead now, you use a long-acting and then kind of pulse it with the short-acting.
1: If you need to. And and, and I would say probably about 25% of the patients that we see, where well, you need to use the combination. But in the other 75%, just generally the symptom-based lorazepam is, is adequate.
0: So this would be a medical detox or, are there, or medical inpatient detox. Are there other kinds of detox available?
1: There are. Some physicians are, are brave enough to try outpatient home detox. And, you know, if, if that's done, we have to be very careful to make sure that there is a responsible adult there to give medications and to monitor for any uh, withdrawal signs. And there's also something called social detox, which is a little bit different Social detox is generally done in an inpatient, not hospital setting, but inpatient-like rehabilitation setting, almost like a halfway house type of environment where there is a nurse there 24-7, and the amounts of meds that you are using are much lower. And, you know, generally there's, you know, protocol that they follow. And typically what we do is we have someone in a hospital setting for the first few days to make sure that they don't develop any withdrawals any Significant withdrawal complications, and then we transfer them out to finish off in a social detox environment.
0: It sounds like you have a bias maybe against outpatient detox.
1: I've had patients actually have quite a few patients that have had seizures with outpatient detox, mm-hmm. and so my I'm, I'm much more conservative. And you know, generally, my rule of thumb is what would I do if it was a family member? And you know, if it was a family member, you want them to be as safe as possible, you don't want them having a seizure out on, at home and getting injured. So, yes, my bias is definitely towards. And that might also be because in my patient practice, I mean, I'm seeing probably a lot of the worst of the worst, which might be different than, you know, in the average primary care practice, who is physicians able to address some of these issues before their disease gets to the point where their withdrawal is really bad.
0: So how long does it take usually to detox somebody from alcohol?
1: The time to detox someone from alcohol kind of varies, but in an inpatient environment, an average rule of thumb is somewhere between 48 and 72 hours roughly two to three days. That's for the acute phase. Then you can have, after that, you can have another phase, which almost everyone has, which is called post-acute withdrawal syndrome phase, or better known as pause. And that can go on for really, you know, six to 18 months. And that's where the brain chemistry is trying to reset itself from all the changes that have happened as a result
0: but now during pause, we don't need to necessarily give them meds like Ativan or Librium, do we?
1: No, you don't give you don't give meds like Ativan and Librium. But there's definitely other medications that are used that are not benzodiazepine or generally addictive in nature. It's been kind of interesting in the last, I would say, seven eight years. There's been an increase in the number of meds that we can use for that. In the present time, there is three medications really that are available that are designed to be used in patients after they've been detoxed to help with uh, neurochemical regulation.
0: And those three would be what?
1: One is acamprosate, which is uh, Camprol is a brand name. One is naltrexone, which is available in two forms. One is an oral tablet called Revia, and the other one is a once-a-month injectable called Vivitrol.
0: Now, how would your strategy change for a polysubstance abuser?
1: Polysubstance abuser, there's a couple of issues that I tend to look at. One is generally there's a drug of choice. I'll give you a typical example. You'll have someone that is coming in that's abusing alcohol and uh, cocaine. One of those drugs is going to be the drug of choice. And typically, the way to ask them is, "Is if I put you in a room with an ounce of cocaine and beer and vodka, what would you go to first? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of their drug of choice. And so we base, at that point, we base their their primary detox based on the drug of choice, and then we may use adjunctive therapy to help with the other withdrawal. And to use the example of an alcohol with cocaine, in this case, if the, if the patient was primarily alcohol with secondary cocaine, we would use the same withdrawal strategies that we've already talked about. But then in addition, that I would add some other medications that have been shown anecdotally to have some benefit in cocaine withdrawal, which may not necessarily be benzodiazepines.
0: Now, there aren't any FDA-approved medications for cocaine withdrawal, are there? No.
1: Unfortunately, it's one of those areas of medicine where we have so many patients with so many problems. I mean, the, the lifetime prevalence of substance abuse is something, something like one in eight in the United States, but there's not a lot of meds and necessarily studies being devoted to meds. So a lot of what you see is anecdotal, off-label uses and things like that. There are, you know, I think, three or four drugs available for the treatment of alcoholism that are FDA-approved, and there is one excuse me, two drugs available for the treatment of opiate dependence that are FDA approved, but there's probably 20 or 30 meds for the treatment and addictions in general that are off-label but recognized as appropriate treatments.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Singla. We've been discussing alcohol detoxification and what happens next. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.